0: He is risen. But what if you're not so sure? What if Easter leaves you filled with doubts? What if our chance of he is risen and he is risen indeed sound more cultic than triumphant? And what if your word order is different and there's that question mark after Indeed. If that's the case for you, then Jesus made a moment just for you. And it's in John 20, verse 24 through 29. And it's about average Joe Thomas. Maybe a better name than Doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, And put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now really significant to this passage is the one right before it in verse 19 through 23. The one that Thomas missed. And we don't get an answer, but it's okay to ask, where was he? He should have been with the disciples, and yet, like them, maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was hiding on his own, alone. Maybe he was with family. We, we just don't know. You can have a little bit of uh, freedom in trying to answer that question. Just remember to keep it in pencil. We don't have the answer, so we need to be careful not to accuse Thomas of too much. But it's okay to ask that question. Where was he? And Why wasn't he with them? But this time, eight days later, he was. Before that, verse 25, the first part, it points out that the 12 told him. If you've ever seen that and wondered, by the way, the 12, well, one of them is gone. He's literally hung himself, that's Judas, and they would have probably pushed him to the side anyways. But the other one is Thomas. So really, it's the 10 told him, the 12 is a title. We do that all the time in life, by the way. If you have ever gone online and somebody's challenge to your faith is, well, the 12 shows there's an error, please do a little better digging. Because we do these things in life all the time. The 12 is a title, it's the disciple. it's the core disciples, there are others that have seen Jesus at the point Thomas encounters him in this story, in this account. But we're talking about the primary 12 disciples, even though it's 10 plus Thomas and minus Judas at this point. The 12 told him, we saw him. You weren't there. But we saw him. Imagine for a moment if your high school sports team or your college roommates, or your military unit, or if you work in a small office or a small business, that your coworkers all told you the same incredulous story and you refused to believe them. And that's where Thomas is at, for good reason. It's beyond incredulous, it's impossible that they saw a risen Jesus, or at least it's supernatural. And he has no place. To fathom it, it doesn't matter how many times Peter insists, and it doesn't matter how many times John points out he's a faster runner than Jesus than uh, Peter. Excuse me. Thomas can't come to grips with what they're saying; he just isn't having it. And so, in the other part, the end of twenty-five, he says, "Unless I get the experience, by the way, that you all had in verse nineteen and twenty, unless I have that experience too." then I'm never going to believe. But what's 19 and 20? You probably haven't looked there yet. I have this week, but let me read it to you. On the evening of that day, it's Resurrection Sunday, the very first one. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were all afraid that it was all crumbling down upon them and they were going to go to jail and die. So the doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you, just like the passage I read with Thomas. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. See, the 12, the 10, really, when they're telling Thomas that they had this and he says, I want the same thing, he's literally just saying, I want the same thing. You all got to touch his hands. We think of Thomas being the only one that had that experience, but the rest of the disciples had just had that. So I call them average Joe Thomas, doubting Thomas. How about average Joe Thomas, or maybe this one, same as I would do Thomas, or just like John, the author of the gospel, Thomas. After all, let's go back before that moment, eight days prior to Thomas getting the experience, The 12 didn't believe the women when they said the tomb was empty either. They couldn't fathom it. And the 12 just touched Jesus' hands too. So when Thomas says, I will never believe, it's somewhat understandable. But also maybe that's you. Maybe you're not sure about this whole resurrection thing. And maybe you think you'll never believe. And if that's the case, then this account of doubting Thomas, or just like John Thomas, or average Joe Thomas, this is for you. Verse 26 points out eight days after verse 19 and 20. Jesus made Thomas wait eight days a week, Sunday to Sunday. They counted both Sundays on that one. That's how they get to eight. Jesus could have met him that night. He could have met him on Monday. He could have shown up on Friday and started the weekend out well, or the Sabbath. He made him wait eight days. That's profound. Not necessarily theologically significant, but practically significant. We pray for something, and we wonder why God hasn't answered in 30 seconds God made Thomas wait eight days. Jesus let Thomas wrestle with doubt and with the witness accounts that he had for an entire week. And we get so caught up in our timelines, but God often takes his time. We see that throughout scripture. God has a much slower pace than we sometimes want him to. But oftentimes later, we we recognize, not always, but oftentimes later, we recognize that his pace was better. I don't know why Jesus let Thomas wrestle for eight days, but I do know this. He wasn't messing with him. He wasn't playing with Thomas. It wasn't malicious. He wasn't being cruel. And Thomas had a sufficient amount of evidence. He had the eyewitness accounts. Multiple people had talked with Jesus and seen Jesus and touched Jesus. He simply wanted more. So make no mistake, Jesus isn't toying with Thomas, and God doesn't play mischievous games with us. The eyewitness accounts were absolutely sufficient to believe. But just like us, Thomas wanted more. And so in verse 27... Jesus says this, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus comes and he says, okay, Thomas, you've had sufficient evidence, but now let me give you the evidence that you want. He knew what Thomas had said, by the way, so you get a little glimpse of his omniscience, the whole attribute series that that Benji has been taking us through over the past weeks and months. Those theological attributes are profound. God's character is amazing. And Jesus looks at him and says, here's the evidence, not just that you need, but that you want. So do not disbelieve. Instead, believe. But I think it's really interesting to notice in this account, Jesus is not the one that calls Thomas doubting. That's our name for him. That's our quick reference for him. Jesus doesn't even rebuke him, particularly here. He talks with him. You could, I guess, say he confronts him, but that, that's a pretty mild confrontation. He's just face-to-face with him, So he doesn't condemn Thomas for not believing Peter or Andrew or the other disciples. He does, though, do something amazing, which we'll get to in a minute. See, with doubting, it's really important to notice that Scripture is firm about doubt, but it's also gentle with those who doubt. There are the passages, usually talking to the disciples who have wandered with Jesus, by the way, that says, you have little faith, and faith like a mustard seed. But there's also a verse we read a little while ago, Jude 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. God understands if people struggle and question and doubt, and wrestle with faith. That also is scattered throughout scripture. Have mercy on those who doubt. And Jesus does. He says, Thomas, here's the evidence you want. You had enough, but here's the evidence you want. And Thomas's response is amazing. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This, by the way, is belief. We see it in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Thomas, my Lord and my God. But also, and you might have heard this before, it's far from The softening challenge that some people call it, a divinity claim that, by the way, would be profaning, and the the Jewish people did not do this out of fear of taking the Lord's name in vain, but it would have been something like this. We should maybe learn something from them, by the way. Those of you who flippantly use this phrase that I'm about to say, we shouldn't. But some people say Thomas was just dropping an, oh my God, it's really my master. But the Jews didn't do that. They wouldn't even say Yahweh, much less drop it flippantly like our culture does. That, to them, was breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So Thomas isn't saying, oh my God, it's my Lord, and softening it. He's literally saying, my God, Jesus, you are my God, my Lord, my God. My favorite commentary series, it's NAC or New American Commentary Series, this one on, on uh, the book of John is by Gerald L. Borchart, and he pointed out a couple interesting things. This is very possibly a point back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with God and was God. He could be pointing back. It's the same book, and it's wrapping it up, and it starts with the theological statement about Jesus being God, and it ends Near the end, there's one more chapter, but it ends with this story of doubting Thomas and him proclaiming, my God. So that's one possibility, probability. Perhaps it's also an echo of something I've talked a lot about before, and this was huge and crucial in Jewish life. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and the Shema's, the Lord our God That John is pointing back to that, that Thomas is is proclaiming that, but in a very present, I am face to face with the resurrected Lord, the Lord our God, but it also is probably a challenge to Roman emperor worship because the phrasing they would use for that is our Lord and God. All three of those might be in play. There's a question mark on them. You got to wrestle with that and think it through. I don't know how many times I've read this part of that commentary. This is the first week it's ever popped out of me, what he said, though. And it was really interesting. Thomas goes from I'm never going to believe to maybe referencing the Shema, John's tying it back to John 1-1, and accidentally or intentionally on behalf of Thomas challenging Roman emperor worship all at one time. And it's a cool little forward statement. My Lord and my God. And Thomas believes. And then, and this would be the rebuke. I don't think it's a rebuke, though. I think it's simply an affirmation in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Now, there could be frustration in those words on the part of Jesus. But I think it's really just highlighting what comes next. And I told you, if you have doubts and questions And really all of us, this passage, Jesus turns from talking to Thomas, and he's talking to us. Everyone who is going to live after this moment, and the farther away from it, the more it rings true. Have you believed because you've seen me? You had sufficient evidence, but you wanted more. You wanted experiential evidence. Have you believed because you've seen me blessed? are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says, Thomas, there's going to be generations of believers that come after you that can't have this experience. They're going to have to trust the eyewitness accounts, including yours. And you can hear in that a little bit of, that's why I repeated this one with a doubter. If you want to hear Jesus label him doubting Thomas, that would be the only point you can grab it. Have you believed because you've seen me? You need more evidence? Great. I'm happy to provide the evidence for all who would need. But blessed are those, he goes to the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are in our shoes. Because we are not living in the first century in Jerusalem in the locked room with the twelve with the opportunity to put our hands in, our fingers in his hand and our hand in his side. We have to trust Thomas's account. And we have to trust the 12's account. And we have to trust 1 Corinthians 15's talking about the appearances that were made. And we have to trust the eyewitness evidence which there's sufficient and plenty of reason to trust But you all and I cannot have the experience Thomas had. And Jesus knows that and he's talking about us. So if you're doubting, know this. Jesus looked at you through history and said, blessed are you if you can wrestle through those doubts and land on faith. Blessed are those who have not yet believed. Blessed are those who are dependent on your witness as evidence rather than this experience. Blessed are we. He is absolutely talking to us. And so if your risen indeed wavers or has a question mark, then know this. Jesus is absolutely looking you in the eyeballs and talking to you. He's doing it through the pages of a gospel, and he's doing it through the experience of Thomas and the conversation he has. But he looks at Thomas and he said, Thomas, this made you believe? Blessed are those who can't be in your sandals for a moment. Jesus is affirming the Hebrews 11 reality of hoping for what we have not yet seen, but have full reason to have confidence in. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6, the reality of trusting, in this case, God's eyewitness accounts that he provided. But make no mistake, this is anticipatory reasoned faith, not blind, irrational faith. Scripture never affirms blind, irrational faith. It might affirm somebody who has blind, irrational faith. But when Scripture talks about faith, there's evidence and reason and credence behind it. John writes this after that account with Doubting Thomas. The very next verses, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I didn't write them down in the end of 21. He says, we couldn't even write them all down. There's not enough ink or paper. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So if you're struggling or wavering or doubting or have questions, know this. Jesus is looking at you through time in a conversation with Thomas, and John is writing it down and saying, This is here that you might believe, and by believing that you may have life. Here's some of the evidence. Just some, by the way, and I'm going to reference it quickly. There are long conversations behind all of these, but that scripture lays out and that we have. Number one, the gospels, all four of them. They're historical eyewitness accounts. If you want some great explanations of that, go get J. Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity. It's one of many apologetic resources that help us think through and talk about and discuss with others. The evidence that we have or Josh McDowell's evidence for faith. And if you don't like those, great, find others. There are so many things that have been written over the last 2,000 years that can help us understand the confidence we should have in the eyewitness accounts, the Gospels. Beyond that, though, there are doubters or deniers that we see in Scripture that are very significant in this moment. They were not in that room they, in fact, were locked out of that room intentionally. The people that they would have been afraid from, and some of them, Paul, pops up later, but others, Jesus' brothers, are right around them and knew everything about these guys. The family was not happy with the followers of Jesus. We see some moments in Scripture that they weren't happy with Jesus. Certainly not their, their his followers then. But the other doubters, Paul and James and Jude... They all become convinced that Jesus is risen and that it is the most important part of all of history. Paul, who was hunting people down. And by the way, skeptic scholars love Paul. Go check out some of the discussion about that. They may doubt the Gospels. They shouldn't, but they might. But they latch on to Paul as having veracity And being trustworthy. Which is great. Because you can defend the cross with Paul alone. It's spectacular. But also James and Jude, the brothers. Think about your siblings. And how it would go down if you claimed to be God. It wouldn't go well. It shouldn't go well, by the way. But also how if you rose from the dead, it might impact things. If you made crazy claims, not even... Jesus-level crazy claims, but just Joseph from Genesis-level claims. And then you died. But then you came back. That would have a profound moment on the family reunion. And it did. And so James and Jude go from being the brothers of Jesus that are challenging him, mocking him even in an account, saying, you make these claims, go prove it. It's time to go, buddy. And instead, they write books about following him. And they don't claim brotherhood, even though we know it. The claim is a servant of Jesus. Something happened, and those accounts are significant. You even, I'll come back to this word later, but you even see, if you want to argue it, you got to be careful with terms. I'll come back to that too. But biblical deconstruction of Paul and Peter's faith just make sure if you're ever involved in deconstruction, it's the good kind and not the bad kind. And there's so much more. There's logical and personal evidence. The personal, primarily being the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, that is convincing to us. It's not necessarily convincing to somebody else, but that's convincing to us. Well, what do we do with this? It's an amazing account. I love the appearances. They're so much fun to take a look at. They're Amazing to talk about with students and college students when they want to engage in the conversation and talking about the evidence of a resurre- resurrected Jesus. To take He is risen, He is risen indeed, and remove a question mark or make it more than just a mantra and into a life statement that has the impact that it had on Paul and James and Jude. Number one is this if you don't waver in your faith, if you don't have doubts, or if you do, It's finding confidence in Christ and the evidence for faith. That we have reason to believe. We don't just gather on Sunday mornings, which by the way, if Jesus isn't risen, might be a really weird thing to do. I can make an argument to sleep in a little longer. I like sleeping. It's great. I wish my dog would cooperate with that a little bit more, and it doesn't. But confidence in Christ, that this isn't wasted time, but the best use of time. And the most important aspect of life, that we'd have confidence in Christ, but also that we would take our own confidence and look to encourage others. And I challenge you, Grace, if you are strong in your faith and you don't have those doubts and questions, not in a judgmental way, but look for people to help and encourage and be ready to walk and wrestle through things with others who are not so confident that we would have mercy on those who doubt. Not point and scoff or belittle and even challenge in the negative sense of that word, but to encourage and to challenge in a positive sense. The American church, by the way, has not always done a great job of this. In fact, it's often been very bad at it. We look at people and we make them feel lesser if they have a timely or good question. Or maybe just one we've never thought of and had to wrestle through on our own. That you'd encourage others by meeting them with mercy and grace. Anytime you bump into somebody who doubts and questions and isn't so sure, that when you hear a kid reading in Awana or in children's church, and then they ask you something that you think, I can't believe they asked that. They're kids, they're gonna ask everything. It shouldn't shock us, but sometimes we make them think you can't ask questions in church instead of thinking church is where I find answers to those questions. And we need to do a better job of that. We need to be ready for long and informed conversations and leave them having to say I don't know and be willing to go do homework to find out an answer and to be honest when we don't know. I try to often with our students answer their questions, but also say, you know what, I don't know, or I've never thought that, but I think maybe my answer would be this, but then also where we need to say, let's go check it out a little more, or let's come back to that next week. I need to look something up. I don't know everything, and I'm certainly not a perfect person, but I love Christ, and I love you, and I want to see your face stronger. We need to learn to approach things like that, to be people who are truth-seeking and discussion-minded rather than compliance and conformity-focused. Speaking of which, I mentioned that sometimes he has risen indeed and some of the other things we do with people who are doubting. It comes across as cultic, and we just need to explain why we do those things or help somebody walk through that. Now, I will say sometimes there is a good challenge To look back and say, wait a minute, you think we're cultic, let's talk about you and your favorite sports team. Because I didn't come dressed up like Jesus today, but you dress up as your favorite quarterback all the time. Let's talk about how weird that should be. So let's be honest where we need to be honest both ways. But I've had students that have said, yeah, Pastor James, that was really weird. Do we have to keep doing that? And it's like, well, you don't have to. But it, to many, it's encouraging. And let's talk about how our culture sometimes is cult-like about some things, but often looks to, likes to just look at the church and say that we're the only ones. We're in a passage talking about doubt, and I mentioned what is a very trendy and sometimes scary word, deconstruction or deconstructing our faith. I bumped into that, this as I was wrapping up. I had wrapped up, actually, my sermon stuff. This comes from Kerry Newhoff's site. It's actually, I think, by Joe Terrell. It's an article that kind of hit online on Thursday. If you want to check it out, it's called Five Real Reasons Young People Are Deconstructing Their Faith. Uh, If you get my notes or if you email me and want the link, I can send it to you uh, a little later. Here's three of the five. The first one is this. Trust in large institutions is declining all across the board. Here's a quote from it. Only 24% of 18 to 34-year-olds said pastors and clergy have high honesty. I want to be offended as a pastor, but I know why they feel that way. But I am scared as a pastor that they feel that way. And then I'm a little intrigued by what that demographic is putting their faith in instead of that there's four institutions. the article talks about government, a um, couple other things. Church is one of them. But their trust in large institutions is declining all across the board. The answer is yes, it is. That is why deconstruction of faith and church is becoming a bigger thing. The fourth one, the second one I'm telling or sharing with you, but the fourth one is the prideful prioritization of conformity over unity. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do things like he is risen, he is risen indeed, but with the demographic that's struggling with conformity, you have to dress this way to be accepted by God. I mean, not to be accepted, but to be liked in church. They struggle with that. And it feels like that's over, but it isn't. We just have found some different ways to do it. And then the fifth one, the acceptance of political idolatry and conspiracy theories in Christian communities. Adults, if you've tuned me out, please listen. Listen. Kids and teens, you can too. But adults, our political engagements, alliances, and endorsements are costing us the trust and faith of that generation. You need to hear that. Our engagements and alliances is literally, and it may be their fault, not ours, but we are having an impact on them, is costing us their trust, which is going to have an impact on the rest of it, And sometimes their faith. We are to a great extent why they are deconstructing and walking away from church because of it. So it's very important though, and this is kind of a life thing, but anybody involved in debate knows this, apologetics, other things that you define your terms. So regarding deconstruction, I'm going to do a little bit of explaining or differentiating between two kinds. Deconstruction is the pulling apart. It's literally deconstructing. It's demolition if you do it to your house, deconstruction. But, and I want you to know this, nobody can deconstruct faith in church like a PK, that's me, pastor's kid, or a pastor, also me, that loves science, still me, I like science, and apologetics, yeah, that's me too, yeah, I like doing that, and culture and politics and government and a couple other things. Actually, if you ever hear me, I'll say, hey, politics, that's the gamesmanship side of it, love government. Last couple years, even that, I don't—I don't know how to phrase it anymore. But I'm intrigued by all those things. I can pick things apart in church and faith. Trust me. And if you ever want to have that conversation, come talk to me. I've been in church as a PK since I was three. And a Baptist, on top of that. By the way, I meant to add that one in too. Yeah, I can pull things apart and point out some of the weird, goofy things that we do. And I love Jesus. And I love church. In fact. I don't like how people talk about the bride of Christ sometimes. It makes me mad. <laughs> I gotta be careful with how mad it makes me sometimes. But deconstruction, if and when it means deconstructing culture, even church culture, don't be afraid, especially if you're driven to Christ and scripture and faith and truth and church community, community through that process, great. All of us don't ever be afraid of that. Parents and grandparents. Don't be afraid of this kind of destruction. I'm sorry, deconstruction. That's a bad slip of the tongue there. Deconstruction. It might feel like destruction, and it's a trendy and scary term. I mentioned that, but it's actually the very good process youth ministry has been talking about for a long time that's called owning your faith. Because if you're a kid that grew up as a PK since you were three in church and you see all the goofy things that we sometimes do as a Christian, including Dressing kids in clip-on ties. If you like doing that, that's fine. I'm not picking on that. But like all of these things from forever. And then we throw in communion. They're Like we're doing what? You're like, can I have more juice and bread? No, we can't have too much juice and bread. You only have to take the little dose of juice and bread. That's a good thing, but too much. Now you're just being a bad kid. And they're like, I don't know what to do with all of this. When you hit 13 to 18, you better own and pick it apart or you're going to walk away from it all. And I've seen this with friends and students and everybody else. When they've had just a bunch of legalism dumped on it or things they don't understand, and they hit college and everybody's drinking and they start drinking and they go, well, I didn't die now, so I guess it's all wrong, they don't go back to church. But if you'll help walk them through why your family believes the things that it does about drinking or not drinking... And why your church does the weird things it does. And why, above all, Jesus needs to be the focus of their life. That's called owning your faith. And if that's what they mean by deconstruction, embrace it with all that you have and support it the entire way. But, if and when it is tearing you, young people especially, you need to hear this, but it's not just young people deconstructing their faith. If and when it's tearing you from family and faith and hope and truth, flee. Especially when it isn't particularly well-researched or as well-researched as you think it is when you Googled five things on the internet. And if you're unable to have conversations about it, especially with those who love you, and not just because they're unwilling, but because you're unwilling, then run away from it. That's unhealthy deconstruction. And by the way, it's all over our culture. So you got to define that term a little bit if somebody's using it. Before you panic, what do you mean by that? Easy defining question. What do you mean by that? Do you mean you're walking away from Jesus because I think we need to have a particular set of conversations then? Or do you mean you're just seeing some weird things we do and you're not sure that you're okay with those as as opposed to this other church that you just don't know their weird stuff yet, by the way. But that you want to go to because their weird stuff isn't as weird to you. Great. I would love for every student that comes through our youth group to stay at Grace because I like seeing them. But as a youth pastor, I am thrilled to see them regularly attending a church, even when it's not ours. I mean, they made a wrong choice because ours are the best. But if they want to make that choice, great. If they are walking with Jesus, that's the choice that matters to me. Speaking of, plug for our youth ministries. Youth ministry is more important than ever. It's not less. It's becoming more difficult, by the way, and I don't mean I'm getting old. I love it more than ever. It is genuinely getting more difficult. It's more a missions thing than ever before, or maybe than the 80s and much of the youth ministry I know, but my youth ministry days go way back to the 70s. It's interestingly and oddly under attack from the church, and please don't get caught up in that. Come have a conversation with me. That's weird to me, but it is. There are books against youth ministry and all kinds of stuff, Christian books. And I'm like, what are y'all doing? The attractional model of the 80s, which is what many of you are familiar with, is mostly gone and very ineffective. It has limited impact. It still works to a degree, but in a different way and so much more. But we need more, not less, of youth ministry. We know by studies the mental health value, especially over the last two years. We know the value in fourth faith formation. We know, by the way, that you need five adults. Every single one of your kids needs five adults that are not you, by the way, parents. Not you. Probably not even grandpa. It's the Joneses teaching every single generation of Sunday school kids in that classroom over there. That's what they need. They'll bump into the hallway. You too as parents, please don't. (laughs) I just fed into some of that genre of downplaying, like Disney killing off the parents. That's not my goal. Parents are vital in addition to godly parents, five adults that they will bump into. My youth staff, Awana leaders, children's ministry that will stick with them throughout. But there's a uniqueness that comes in youth ministry from sleeping on a church floor and then drinking way too much soda, eating way too much pizza, and having those conversations at 2 o'clock in the morning. And we don't usually do that with Awana. Awana is vital. I love Awana. I love our Awana staff. But youth ministry has a unique component, deconstruction trends that we deal with. It is not all fun and games. In fact, by the way, if you don't know me, I am not and never have been the fun youth pastor. I think I'm a really good youth pastor, but I am not the fun one. I know that. That has never been part of my ego. And I am begging you, parents at Grace, treat youth group and youth ministries like the valuable side dishes of Thanksgiving and not like junk food. Keep putting it on their plate. They don't have to like it. You can't make them eat it, but you can keep putting it on their plate. Let me give you a little tale of, I'm going to wrap it up, don't worry. Those of you, by the way, that last time I went super short, I was trying to counter the week before when I went really long, and I totally freaked out the, the worship team last time, so I have to go long for the rest of my sermons all of life, just so you know. No, I'm trying not to. <laughs> I wanna tell you a tale of a couple phone calls, and I'm not gonna give you the details, but over COVID especially, I've had multiple conversations by phone, and email, and message from students that are not in my youth ministries anymore. It goes all the way back to 2002 and beyond. Because I tell them all the time, and they don't usually believe me until they need it, I'm your youth pastor for life. Like, I'm not your youth pastor for the six years you're in our youth ministries, junior high and high school. As long as I'm breathing, you can call me. And with some of the kids that I am connected through and that we are connected to, this is from Friday night, by the way. So was the other picture. Through youth ministry, they call and ask great questions. Because when they call me and they're 40 or 30 or 20, 5, they haven't seen me for a while, it usually starts with this. Hey, I don't know if you remember me. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I don't know if you remember me, and can I ask you a question? Yes, absolutely. And then they have hard questions, because you don't call with a light question. Hey, what time's church? Actually, I get that call, too, sometimes. But they call, and they're like, my, and I tell them this, my life fell apart. Will you be there to help me? And the answer is, yeah, as much as I can. I can't always, but I will do everything I can. Or I bumped into this in scripture. really the question is, do you have time for me? And the answer is yes. Parents, please foster that relationship with me and the rest of our youth staff to be those five adults. We want to be, and your kids need it when they're 55. And they can call their Forever 29 youth pastor and ask him if he still has time for them the other one is this. I know some kids that I don't have that relationship with, and I know that they're wallowing on their their own. That's because they didn't foster that with us. It's not that I don't have time for them. I absolutely do. It's that they would never pick up the phone and call me. And they could. It's that we never built that relationship because they bailed on youth ministry. Because I think youth ministry really matters, or I wouldn't do my job. So I'm begging you. Get them into youth ministry. We're their youth ministry, not for six years, but for 60. We'll kick them out eventually, but we'll still have time for them. And everyone, we need more, not less, when struggling with doubt and questions and faith challenges. We need more community, small groups, and Sunday school, and worship. We need more scripture. Everybody stops reading the Bible and they have a question. Read more. Go to John and Romans. You want to talk about questions, read Romans with a notepad and just start writing every question that you have we need more conversation with each other more moments at starbucks we need to do more homework i've mentioned that a couple times i don't know the answer let's go find out together we need more prayer and more worship and at the right time more fasting nobody fasts when they have a critical decision that they need to make that's the perfect time to fast i don't know what to do great you just said i need to fast Come talk with us about that if you need to. More spiritual disciplines. The answer for doubt is so much more, but too often our questions and our doubts pull us away, especially from Christ and community, which is what we need, to. and it pulls us away to much less. Here's the problem with bad deconstruction. You're just left with nothing. You don't get more in the process. You lost it all, and that's what most people that are deconstructed in that way end up finding. It just takes some years to find that out. And then you have to admit that you were wrong and we don't like doing that. So deconstruct the right way if you need to. Pull apart the trappings of culture, but keep Christ and scripture and faith and community in the process. All of that ends up leading to us having a question mark back there and a bigger question mark. Is he indeed risen? But I have a better question for you. For those of you that walked into this room just like Thomas was in that room, here's the question. What will you do now that or when you're face to face with our Lord, our God, the resurrected Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, mighty holy, we praise your name. There are questions in this room that I don't know. And I don't even know that I know the answer to it. But I know you do, and I know church history is riddled with great answers. Lord, help us a grace not to be afraid when somebody asks a great and difficult question, but to point them to you and to your word. Lord, when we doubt, help us to look for more, not less. More of you, more connection, more grace. Lord, help us always, whether doubting or confident, to run to you and to praise your name. Amen.